Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, your excellencies. My name is Sveto Zarayak, and I'm the academic director of LSE Ideas and head of the Balkan International Affairs Program. On behalf of co-directors of LSE Ideas, Professor Cox and Westad, I wish to welcome you all here to the official launch of the Balkan International Affairs Program. Far too often, the Balkan Peninsula is perceived as a hostage of its own past, as the killing field of primordial demons. For centuries, the people of the Balkans lived between hope and despair, between the passion of their mentality and trials of reason, between European near abroad and the heart of Europe. Through the centuries, however, the people of the Balkan Peninsula lived together. We at the LSE Ideas have given ourselves the task to contribute to the understanding of the Balkans beyond the usual stereotypes, such as it being <coughs> the powder keg of Europe. This is the reason why we chose tonight not to reflect upon the past but to look into the future, the Balkans in, 90, in 2020. Now, the youthfulness of Balkan diplomacy in ample evidence here tonight perhaps best reflects the new vigor, vitality, and hope one can see throughout the region. Now, what is the Balkan international affairs at the LSC? about. The program hopes to make a contribution in two main areas, one policy-oriented and the other in the sphere of academia and research. With regard to policy, the program promotes the understanding of the troubled past of the region and contributes to the defining of a vision of the Balkan future. We encourage and engage in debates on current issues of importance <coughs> to the region and, together with Balkan institutions, scholars and practitioners, assist in formulating responses to present and future challenges. As with regard to academia and research, we work with regional governments, academic and research institutions, and the public to promote and actively contribute towards integration of regions, academic capabilities, and intellectual potential. We provide assistance and expertise in the development of advanced scholarship in humanities and social sciences in the Balkans. And together with regional academic and policy institutions, we develop collaborative projects and encourage and facilitate cooperation between these institutions. This occasion is being honored by two distinguished guests. Their Excellencies, Mr. Nikolai Mladenov, the Foreign Minister of Bulgaria, and Mr. Vuk Jeremic, the Foreign Minister of Serbia. Their presence tonight is evidence of the support in the region, and theirs in particular, behind this and similar initiatives aimed at promoting and fostering regional cooperation and understanding. This also represents 
an obligation and challenge for us in LSA Ideas that we are proud to accept, to work diligently towards fulfillment of the goals we have set before us. As is the custom, allow me please to introduce to your art tonight's esteemed speakers and guests. His Excellency Mr. Nikolai Timomladenov has an MA degree in War Studies from King's College just across the street from here. BNMA International Relations from the University of International and World Economy in Sofia. From 2001 to 2005, Mr. Mladeno was a member of the Bulgarian Parliament and between 2007 and 2009, as a member of European Parliament, he served on the Foreign Affairs Committee, Security and Defense Subcommittees. Between July 2009 and January 2010, Mr. Mladeno was Minister of Defense of the Republic of Bulgaria and on January 27th of this year was appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Bulgaria. His Excellency, Mr. Vukjeremic, born in Belgrade in 1975, graduated from the University of Cambridge with a degree in physics. He's a graduate of the John F. Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University, with a degree Master of Public Administration. Prior to democratic changes in Belgrade in October 2000, he worked for a number of financial institutions in the city of London. From July 2004 to May 2007, he served as Senior Foreign Policy Advisor to Boris Tadic, President of the Republic of Serbia, and was sworn in as a Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Serbia on May 15, 2007. Lastly, allow me to remind you of the format of tonight's event. Our guests will provide introductory expose for up to 20 minutes each, after which they have kindly accepted to respond to your questions. <coughs> the first speaker will be His Excellency Mr. Nikolai Mladenov, be followed by His Excellency Mr. Vuk Yeremich. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our esteemed and distinguished guests. Thank you. Thank you everyone for showing up here and let me thank you in advance for not throwing any eggs at us by the end of this <laughs> presentation. Tomorrow I have to fly to Lisbon for the NATO um, summit. This is my suit for tomorrow, so I'd like to keep it that way. Um, Excellency, my friend Vuk, uh, it's very good to be here and I'm very happy for the two of us to be able to sit down um, at the LSE and discuss the Balkans and talk about the future. But let me start with a couple of disclaimers which I think are very important. Um, first, um, somebody recently uh, who was uh, a former foreign minister turned defense minister and I asked him, I said, how is, how is your new job? And he said, well, as foreign minister, I dealt with what the world should be like. And as defense minister, I deal with what the world really is, um, which might actually be a better position to be in than to have moved from understanding the world as it is to what it should be, because then that gives you certain you know, wings of enthusiasm about the future that you might not necessarily be grounded in the realities of today. But um, I always think that it's, it's, it's easier for foreign ministers to talk about the future than anyone else because um, 
it takes a bit of imagination and it takes a bit of courage to be able to look 5, 10, 20 years ahead. So the big disclaimer of today for me is that the vision that I think both Vuk and I will outline to you and the debate that we will have probably might sound rather different if you had invited two defense ministers uh, to sit in this room and discuss uh, not necessarily Bulgaria and Serbia, but any other two countries would do. Um, and the other disclaimer is that it's always easier to talk about the future of the Balkans when you're not in the Balkans. When you come to London, for example, great place to talk about the future of the Balkans. Um, and when you go back to our part of the world, it get, it's a little bit more difficult. It gets much more emotional because of the past. Um, and that is something that I think there's a new generation of people that includes the two of us and, and a number of others that would like to change. We'd like to do away with this invisible difference of outside the Balkans and inside the Balkans. We would like to look to the future um, free of the chains of the past and, and of all the difficulties um, that, that history um, has, has, uh, has made for us. And um, uh, none, of, none of these difficulties have been of the making of people in our generation. So we must feel a little bit more liberated in that um, discussion. Let me start at the very end. Where do we want to see the Balkans in 2020? We'd like to see the Balkans, everyone in the Western Balkans, all our neighbors as members of the European Union. Full stop. We see no other future for the Balkans except membership in the European Union. Full stop. We see no other alternative. You can play around with ideas. You can, you can probably say, well, one country or two countries or three countries, they're not ready or you know, they, they, they might look the other way. They might not want to be part of Europe. And, and, and all of this is very intellectually challenging, but I don't think practically it would work. If all your neighbors are members of the same uh, uh, club, <coughs> follows the same rules, um, if all your neighbors are part of the same economic area uh, that has freedom of uh, movement, that has have, uh, freedom of economic activity and everything that comes along with Europe, uh, then how long can you survive to be outside of that? And is it really worth it? Uh, uh, and is it, does, it, does it really help the future of your country? This is, this, is where we want to, this is where we want to see all our neighbors. And that is why Bulgaria has taken a very, very firm stand, that if we look at our Western Balkans neighbors, and if you, if you take a detailed look at what are the challenges in each country, whether it's Serbia, whether it's Bosnia, whether it's Croatia, or Serbia, any, any other country, if you look at what are the challenges, what are the roadblocks to uh, that process? And you try and identify these roadblocks. And you can probably split them into two groups. The, the, the national roadblocks, things that are related to domestic politics or reforms or economic uh, reforms or social reforms or legal reforms or whatever. And they're regional uh, issues. And, and then you ask yourself a question. Well, we're the country that has been the last to join the European Union. What can we do to make sure that we move our friends uh, along the same path that we've uh, gone through? Well, then we identify these, these blockages and we try and remove them one by one and try and help, not interfere, but help our neighbors remove these blockages one by one. Whether it is a uh, question of uh, moving faster on a political process, as was the case with, um, uh, with, with Serbia, with, for which we argued very strongly that Serbia's application for a, an opinion by the European Commission must be processed quickly to the European Commission, 
uh, as we quickly ratified the Stabilization and Association Agreement so that we can start that process to move forward. Notwithstanding what we do uh, in, with, with one country, we must do the same with other countries. As we argued very strongly and finally, thankfully, achieved a decision within the North Atlantic Council to give the prospect of a membership action plan to NATO for Bosnia, which we believe is a very strong message that uh, can bring uh, people in Bosnia uh, together. Obviously, that's not going to resolve all the problems. Now, of course, we have the, all the, 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 the entire other challenge, making sure that we have the European Union in 2020 still in one place um, where countries can <coughs> accede to. Uh, but that, I think, is a separate, separate discussion. Now, moving our friends forward, helping them overcome the, um, the obstacles. Some would say, well, why would Bulgaria be tasking itself to do this task? Um, uh, Bulgaria has enough of its own problems. Last to join the European Union, poorest country in the European Union. Uh, we have problems with our judiciary, corruption. Uh, we need to deal with that. We're still not members of Schengen far away from the euro, um, why, would we take, why would we take this active approach? Shouldn't we just focus on our own little turf and just make sure that we do our own um, thing and leave the, uh, what happens in the Western Balkans for others? Well, the answer is very clear, no, because exactly because we're the last country to have joined the European Union, we have a lot of understanding of what those difficulties have been. And it's far better to listen to somebody who, who has just been through a process on what the difficulties are, or what the benefits are for that matter, than to listen to somebody who would theoreticize about it. We can attest to the fact that it's not enough just to adopt legislation. It's very important how you implement it. We can attest to the fact that the process of preparing for membership in the European Union has been the driving force for reforms for about a decade at least. We can attest to the fact that the closer you get to membership in the European Union, the bigger the benefits for society at large become. We can attest to the fact that once you're a member of the European Union, your entire way of thinking about uh, how you approach not just foreign policy but also domestic politics uh, becomes quite different. Your perspective uh, becomes quite different. And this is, this is very, very important. And I feel that it, it, it is for us uh, to share that experience, for us to identify those road blockages, to work with our partners, work with our neighbors. Recently I met a friend from Finland who told me he, he had just come back from, um, from the Balkans and said, I'm really happy my country is in northeastern Europe, not in southeastern Europe. Well, I'm sorry, but our countries are in southeastern Europe. And we'd like to make sure that other people, maybe in 10 years or 20 years, um, don't have to make that distinction. Um, and that means working together. That means more regional cooperation. So removing the roadblocks, uh, strengthening regional cooperation, finding ways to resolve issues that have been hanging out there uh, um, uh, in the past um, and in history. This is, this is a role that we must, uh, uh, that we must all, all implement. And I think you know, our country, Bulgaria in this case, is, is, is quite, quite well fitted to, to be part of this mechanism of, 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 of moving the region forward. What's the biggest challenges? I mean, people would say, well, um, you know, it's all great, you know, you all, we all want to see the Balkans in the European Union, but there are so many other problems on the ground that have nothing to do with the European Union and that we must focus on them. 
Um, it's really a pie in the sky. I mean, honestly, can you imagine all these countries becoming members of the European Union? Can you imagine what the Council would look like and how more difficult it would be to implement uh, translations and interpretations in all of these different languages? And really, do we really need to force this debate? And I'm being, I'm being, I'm not being. Actually, I'm being actually very diplomatic about how I phrase the debate, which actually does happen in some parts of Europe um, and in some political circles as well. Um, so this is, it's a valid point to look at why, why we need to bring the Balkans into Europe. Um, we need to do it for two reasons, as far as at least I'm concerned, and they're very, very simple. Uh, the big historical, ideological, if you want, reason, if you look at the broader picture, is that when France and Germany came together um, to form the European Coal and Steel Community, they had the idea to make war impossible in Europe. Uh, the whole uh, setup, the whole razzmatazz of uh, structural funds and cohesion funding and, 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 and all of that that we're all fascinated and, you know, the new member states are all fascinated in Europe about came much later. The, first, the, the initial idea was to make war impossible and then it all spurred into all kinds of other things. I mean, is there any part of Europe right now that the biggest and the most challenging task is not to make war impossible in the Balkans forever. I mean, if we want to get away from the, uh, all the stereotypes, um, is this not the part of Europe that we have this historic responsibility to make war impossible ever, forever, or at least for as long as there's a European Union? Um, to me, this is a very important task, and we somehow forget about it. But there's also another task, um, and that is much more... Uh, uh, maybe politically tangible, if you want. Uh, I spent a lot of time in many of, many of our neighbor, neighboring countries, not just as minister, but as, in various other capacities. I've been in and out of uh, Serbia during the Milosevic dictatorship. I've been in and out of Kosovo and, 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 and God knows how many times in Bosnia. Uh, and, and even in the darkest hours of, uh, of our recent history, there was a, actually a, a large group of people that wanted to see their countries reform. And this large group of people wanted to see their countries become part of the European Union. They wanted to see them reform. They wanted to see life return back to normality. And this large group of people grew. And, it, and it, it, then it became a majority of people. And right now it's a majority of people um, in the Balkans. However, there's a risk that if we don't show very sincerely our commitment to the membership prospect of all of our neighbors in the Western Balkans, this vast majority of reform-minded people will turn very quickly into a dwindling minority that will probably one day be drowned into a, a majority of people that are fascinated by history, by nationalism, by hatred. And this is something that we must never, ever see again in our part of the world. Um, we must give the tools to this vast majority of reform-minded people in the Balkans to move forward. We must show our commitment in the European Union to welcome their countries as they meet the criteria, as they move forward um, with a very, very clear uh, uh, message of support. And this message of support um, is what is the last thing that we really need to work on. And this is where Bulgaria, and I'm with 
a number of other countries in the European Union, is arguing practically at every meeting, and we might be to some becoming rather annoying, sitting down in every single meeting and saying, but let's not forget the Balkans, but let's not forget um, enlargement. Um, and, and this means that we have a double role. We have one role in which we all come together to help our neighbors move forward on the process. Um, and we have another role, in, and that is in keeping this debate with inside Europe very much alive and, and very much dynamic and very much uh, still in the focus, if not the top debate. Obviously, right now, there are a number of other things that have um, overshadowed it, but at least in one of the top five debates in the European Union um, and, and, and keep reiterating this commitment that we have. Um, and it is only countries that have joined Europe, the European Union in the last few years that can attest to the importance of the final commitment, the political will to make that commitment uh, for membership that, uh, that drives reforms. This is, this is a very broad outline where I think I see the Balkans in 2020 um, and I hope that, uh, you know, people like the two of us, maybe others will come after us over the next um, uh, 10 years. Um, at least I hope they will, if, if they're older than us, they'll be a little bit older than us, but not by, uh, by too much, or maybe they can be even younger than us. But it, it's this, this generation um, coming together that can, that can push um, our region forward, because this is where our region wants to be. This is why people, if, if, if you cut through all the crap and through all the uh, political talk and through all the um, uh, historical accusations and the ideologies and everything, if you cut through all of that, this is where everyone believes uh, uh, in our part of the world uh, the Balkans belong. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Nikolai, for, for all the nice words. And now, uh, now, um, now, now on to the now on to the eggs. I, I really, I, I'd be really disappointed if uh, if uh, if the Greeks can do it and and, and, and we can't. So uh, that's actually. I mean, according to my best understanding, it was um, it was our friend. Uh, Foreign Minister of Greece, who is supposed to be with us tonight, and and then now having learned about the, the recent experience here at the LAC, now I understand why is it that it's only the two of us. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'll actually try and, uh, and and avoid the throwing of the eggs since uh, Nikolai was so nice, and maybe we're going to leave this for the later stage in our in our uh, discussion in the Q and A. So I'm going to actually try and, and stick to the script. But um, honestly, thank you very much for your for for this uh, event, uh, Professor Ayak. Thank you, and and thank you, Nikolai. It's uh, really a great privilege to be back, and uh, it's a privilege to be uh, part of the launching of the Balkan uh, International Affairs Program <coughs> to try and talk about unfinished business, conferring on how to achieve common priorities, and and talking about a common way forward. And before going any further, I'd like to start um, from the same point where Nikolai started, and this is to say that uh, the future of the Balkans, future of Serbia, and the rest of the Western Balkans, in our opinion, lies in the European Union. And that is going to continue being the, uh, 
strategic goal and a key priority for the government of Serbia. And um, I'd like to say that we're very proud of the fact that we stayed on course to Europe under very trying circumstances in Serbia. As tumultuous domestic events combined with the effects of the global economic crisis put severe strains on our domestic political processes and uh, consolidation in general. And despite all these difficulties, 2009 turned out to be, and 2010, these two years, they turned out to be Serbia's two best EU accession years ever as visa liberalization became a reality and our formal EU accession process become unfrozen. Um, we submitted our application for membership in the European Union and uh, just over a month ago this application for membership was finally forwarded to the European Commission for an EV. But um, I've got to be honest that despite our progress, uh, there is this distinct impression being formed in parts of the Balkans and in parts of uh, Serbia society, I have to admit, that we're now moving forward towards the uh, accession quickly enough, as if um, in a way a weary time has, kind of, has come upon us all, to quote Coleridge. Uh, from our perspective, Europe seems to be finding itself in a period of uh, post-Lisbon anxiety. And in many of the member countries, we see that some of the Union's basic values and policies are being questioned. For some years now, there have been those who have advocated a slowing down of the enlargement process, or perhaps even stopping it altogether. And as an aspirant country, what is beginning to concern us greatly is that the chorus of naysayers seem to be growing steadily. Unless uh, enlargement fatigue, some people call it enlargement fatigue, in the EU is contained, it will almost certainly produce accession fatigue in aspirant countries. An increasing number of pollsters these days are speculating that 2010 will come to be seen as the historic peak of Euro enthusiasm in our part of the world. And the silent pro-European majorities of people in the Western Balkans could easily become silenced minorities. And here I'm quoting Nikolai. <laughs> Actually, I saw this sentence of yours being spoken a few days ago, a version of which you said today, but we're really talking about trying to sustain enthusiasm and momentum for EU accession process in our part of the world. Each nation state in the Western Balkans, uh, like any other European one, I believe, is proud of its identity. And for us, it is something to be cultivated and not wished away. In our view, identity is not an impediment to fulfilling the region's potential, but actually part of a framework within which solutions to what remain unresolved need to be found. And clearly there are issues that divide us, and that in the years ahead some will still wish to define themselves in that way. We see things differently. 
we believe that we should be defined by the values we hold in common and that we should never forget how similar to each other in the Balkans we truly are. And there is an irony here. When the countries of our region try to maximize narrowly conceived objectives at the expense of their neighbors, which was, for example, the case in the 1990s, we still ended up altogether again, only more bitter and more impoverished, jostling one another to get the best possible look into the window of the European Union. However hard some have tried to downplay or deny it, I strongly believe that we are destined to stay together in one form or another. Thanks in part to our concerted efforts, the governments of the Balkans, some of them European, some of them EU governments, some of them not, the accumulated evidence of progress in the Balkans, despite our difficulties, has become conclusive. And everyone can see very clearly that regional relations have reached a new level of trust and understanding. And even on the most challenging issues, we have found ways to work together as never before. In the decade to come, regional cooperation, in my view, will increasingly provide the most appropriate framework for how the remaining challenges we face in the Western Balkans are going to be addressed. As a reminder of how rapidly things can change for the better, consider that not a long time ago Serbia itself was widely considered to be the outstanding issue affecting the Balkans. And this is simply no longer the case. Serbia has gone from being an issue to being an actor, to paraphrase one of our colleagues, and now acknowledged as being an indispensable part of the answer to a number of outstanding challenges. While there are others to discuss, I would like to focus on four. And I'm going to start by transnational organized crime, one of the darker sides of globalization. It is becoming a strategic issue that affects all of you. Already leading gangs are increasingly trying to use the Western Balkans as a staging ground to consolidate their reach into the other parts of the old continent. Serbia has declared a total war on organized crime and will spare no effort to eliminate this threat to our national security. We've been encouraged by our successes, the result not only of our own work, but also because of the cooperation we enjoy with some of our neighbors as well as partners further afield. However, ultimate success cannot come without a much stronger and more coordinated effort by the entire region. For organized crime is like water. It spreads into parts where it finds least resistance. Serbia, for its part, will do whatever it takes and we will stay the course until this war is won. The second challenge I want to discuss here is reconciliation. It is the key to assuring that the Balkans will finally be able to shed the infamous perception of being the powder keg of Europe. Professor Rex spoke about it earlier tonight. We have been too often caricatured as a region dominated by perennial political fragmentation, arbitrary injustice, and recurring warfare. 
I believe that three countries that are making up the pivotal Balkan Triangle, Croatia, Bosnia and Serbia, have a particular obligation to lead it, this drive for change. For it is there that the ground is most soaked with the blood of generations. It is undoubtedly a tall order, for the task at hand is to transform the very essence of the relationship between our three nations. For Serbia, this is not only a policy priority, but a strategic and moral imperative, critical to correcting a twisted view of the other side. We cannot turn back the clock, but we can pay our respects to the victims and express our regrets to the families. President Tadic of Serbia has tried to lead by example. Very recently, he traveled to Vukovar in Croatia, as he did to Srebrenica on the 10th and the 15th anniversaries of the massacre that took place there. The President's efforts were also instrumental in ensuring that our National Assembly passed a historic declaration on the crime that took place in that Bosnian town. It was unequivocally condemned, while condolences and apologies were extended. This act of Parliament was unprecedented, not only for the Western Balkans, but for the whole of Europe. This is the first time in the history of the European continent that there is an act of Parliament extending an apology to someone for a misdeed of the past. And we're talking about Europe, a continent whose very long history remembers many occasions requiring contrition. The third issue I want to discuss here is Bosnia and Herzegovina. As our most important neighbor, we see Bosnia's prosperity as a crucial to that of the Western Balkans. Time and again, we have emphasized our absolute commitment to its sovereignty and territorial integrity. On this issue, we make no difference when it comes to any UN member state. Serbia's one Bosnia policy is, in our view, the surest guarantee that the country will not break up. And as a responsible stakeholder in its future, we will continue to exercise our influence in a constructive way by making it clear that we will support whatever reforms are acceptable to representatives of both entities and three nations, stressing the need for mutual respect, pragmatism, and compromise. Our way of looking at the situation in Bosnia has been informed by the fact that the consensus building is a core 21st century European value in decision-making principle, aptly illustrated by the fact that on important institutional changes in Europe, all must give their consent. Sometimes this takes longer than one would like, but at the end of the day, when agreement is reached, everyone is capable of safely moving forward again. The consensus principle has also guided our approach to resolving the fourth and final outstanding issue that I'd like to address today, and this is the issue of Kosovo. Our principal position on this issue remains unchanged. We shall not recognize Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence explicitly or implicitly. This is enshrined in our constitution and is a product of a de facto public consensus driven by a firm electoral majority.
But from the very onset of this great crisis, diplomacy has stood at the forefront of our efforts to manage the differences. Serbia decided to forego unilateral countermeasures, such as the use of force or economic sanctions. We did not seek confrontation, but compromise. In fact, we responded to Pristina's attempt at secession in a way that is wholly unknown to the Balkan experience. This is the very first time in the history of the Balkans, and pardon me for speaking a little bit about history, because I believe it's an important point for the future. This is the very first time in the Balkan history that a war hasn't broken out over an issue of such magnitude and such gravity. But now, the world has supported by acclamation the fact that the only road to peace in Kosovo is through dialogue. And we look forward to beginning this dialogue as soon as possible. And we expect to start from the least controversial issues first, before gradually moving on to the more delicate topics. No one should doubt our readiness to be constructive in working to forge a transformative peace between Serbs and Albanians. We intend to be open and honest about what we want and what we can agree to. We shall make creative proposals and work incessantly to produce a compromise in Kosovo that everyone can accept. But I want to emphasize how important it is for everyone to stay committed to engage in good faith. For in the 21st century, no side can ever triumph by demanding unilateral concessions or seeking to maximize narrowly conceived objectives. Win-win solutions are impossible to find with zero-sum attitudes. The attempt, therefore, by anyone to undermine the dialogue through trying to alter realities on the ground unilaterally or by having recourse to the use of force must not be tolerated. Because should this happen, and we hope it does not, this could dramatically and perhaps fatally undermine the dialogue. <coughs> to reach a comprehensive settlement in Kosovo, to reach a solution that everybody can live with, to reach a solution that is going to enhance good relations between peoples, working together in a way to become EU member, leaving bad things in the past, and truly looking towards the future, doing that in best faith and using a little bit of patience and understanding for the positions of the other side. That's how we see this process. And that is the goal that we are trying to achieve in the end when it comes to Kosovo, such as Serbia's vision, such as the Serbian way of looking at the current situation. And um, I want to conclude that, I want to conclude this remark by uh, revoking a memory of, um, of an important statesman and an important visionary that comes from more part of the world, who was maybe one of the first to articulate a strategic vision of European integration for the entire Western Balkans. It's the late Prime Minister of Serbia, Zoran Jinjic. 
His courage and leadership brought great change to my country and the Western Balkans as a whole. He understood that the drive to attain EU membership constituted a fundamental turning point for the region, and especially for Serbia, whose democratic transformation he believed was the key to a strong, stable, and prosperous Western Balkans. Zoran looked at the future not as an armchair revolutionary or a salon politician, but as a patriot who aimed to build. His life remains a source of inspiration for many of us in Serbia and beyond. And he was incontestably one of those men endowed with the ability to see far enough around the corner and time to change it for the better. Nothing could be more appropriate in my view than to conclude these remarks with something he once said. Uh, when they speak positively about us, Zoran once declared, they call us out East Europe. And when they don't, we're just a Balkans. So let us pledge to work, each of us in our own way, in ensuring the Balkans become permanently transformed into Southeast Europe by 2020, let's say. And I'm sure that if Zoran were around, that uh, he would have said to us that uh, we can get it done in much less than a decade. But what is more certain, however, is that we could not do much better than to focus our efforts on winning the war against organized crime, completing the process of reconciliation, making sure that there's a prosperous future for Bosnia, and finding a solution we cannot live with for Kosovo. The four issues I decided to raise with you tonight. And as, as he said, and Professor Rack, if you allow me, if I may invoke Zoran's words in one final context, let us also see what we can do to start calling this initiative the Southeast Europe International Affairs Program. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, <clears throat> before we proceed with the Q&A, um, let me use this privilege of being the chair and ask our hosts uh, two questions. Uh, by the way, uh, we have agreed that we'll be taking one question at a time, so this is how we will proceed. Um, it seems that both Your Excellencies agree that Europe-EU membership is the goalpost, and this is something that the whole region is aspiring as a whole by 2020. Now, following some of them on your words, that EU cannot be taken as everything, um, and that there are many problems that need to be dealt with. Having in mind some of the, those that you have mentioned, as it, Mr. Yeremich, crime, corruption, so forth, is there a way for the countries of the Balkans now, today, to deal with these problems, which uh, surely will, will help the, the remaining countries join the EU. In this sense, I'm also talking about institution building, one of the problems in, in, in the Western Balkans. And the second question, um, his, through history, Balkans were, the, the region was a bridge between Europe and the Middle East. Um, having in mind that the big giant was standing on the doorstep of Europe, Turkey, is also a Balkan country. How can the region again 
retain this, this role of, of a bridge <coughs> uh, between Europe and EU and the European near abroad, to use the, the term. Um, I'm, I, I'm going to take the second question. If you <laughs> um, how can the, the Balkans retain the, 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 the role they played throughout history of being the bridge between Europe, EU, and the near abroad, and having in, in particular in mind Turkey and the, the I issue think, of Turkey? Uh, I think sentence. you're you're really raising one of the one of the, one of the key questions here that are that are very relevant to the. Uh, to the historical process of, uh, of accession for the entire Western Balkans. And this is something that uh, the formulation of your question is reminding me of, uh, of a conversation I had uh, with one of our colleagues from the European Union recently, very recently, when I tried to explain to him the, the historical role of the Balkans as a bridge. And, and sometimes it played for the better and sometimes actually for the worse. Um, there are a lot of countries who are now saying that after Croatia, because Croatia is going to join the European Union and Croatia is going to join the European Union very soon, I hope it happens in 2012, I hope they finish their negotiations in 2011 and I really wish that they join the European Union um, as soon as possible. But there are a lot of countries who are saying after Croatia is joining, there's going to be a long pause. Pause for reflection, pause for you know, internal consolidation. We need to deepen Europe before we widen it. There are many ways of saying the same thing. Um, at the same time, these very people are saying never to Turkey. The group of people who say one thing and the other thing, they usually overlap. I then just ask a question. Guys, are you aware of the fact that for about 800 years, for the about last 800 years, we were, um, for about 600, we were a part of Turkey. So if you say there is going to be a pause after Croatia, long pause, serious pause, strategic pause, and then you say never to Turkey, then one cannot but ask oneself a question coming from the Balkans, what is exactly the border of Turkey as they see it, those who advocate this, um, this kind of reflection. My opinion, the position of the government of Serbia is that the entire Balkans, including Turkey, should accede to the European Union. We are supporters of Turkey's membership in the European Union. And I believe that there are, um, <coughs> there are not too many countries who, who are as strong as advocate of Turkey's accession as Serbia is. But thinking in historical terms, I think that right now in the Balkans we are addressing a strategic question as to what is going to be the border of Europe and whether the border of Europe is going to encompass Turkey or not. And that the Western Balkans may fall victim, at least temporarily, at least in this generation, to this strategic debate. The best way to deal with it, in our opinion, 
is swift continuation of Western Balkan countries' accession after creation. I think that there has to be a, a hook, if you will, between Serbia and Croatia in 2011. And that's why I believe 2011 is going to be a critical year. This should be a year when Croatia ends negotiations and Serbia starts negotiations. And I think this will provide for um, significant and sustainable momentum for the rest of the Western Balkans to follow, to follow the course. And uh, that the issue of Turkey should not become a part of the Western Balkans debate. Because if it does, it hasn't played out all that well for the better part of our history. Thank you. Just uh, briefly, let me start with a second question. I hate this bridge analogy, and I never use it, and I would suggest that nobody would ever use it, because a bridge is something you walk over to get from one place to another. Um, I don't think the Balkans are a bridge. The Balkans are where the traditions and cultures of Christianity, Orthodox, Catholic, um, it, it's different variations in Islam, meet and have actually coexisted quite peacefully and quite successfully for a long time. Um, and I don't think that it, the Balkans need to be part of anyone's empire for that coexistence to exist. Um, we can do that pretty much on our own. Um, again, for that, in the, you need to have the European perspective for the, um, for the Balkans uh, to be very, very visible. Uh, Turkey is a country that we have committed to negotiate. Bulgaria is the last country to have joined the European Union. It shan't be the first country to stand up against anyone else joining the European Union. It would be rather silly of us to do that. Um, um, we've committed to a process of negotiations. We must address these negotiations in all earnest um, and, and, and with the full honesty of approaching any negotiation. And any attempt to pretend that we're, well, we're negotiating, but we're not really interested in um, negotiating would send a very wrong signal to uh, people in Turkey and it would send a very wrong signal to people in Europe. And I think there are many, many issues of credibility in Europe right now um, that we'd better get off our table as soon as we can um, uh, to, to include also this one. Um, on your first question on the um, uh, possibility to deal with the problems like organized crime and, and transborder issues, um, this is where I think if, if you look at sort of key areas of um, um, need for, co not just need, but what's a stronger word for a need, a demand for uh, cooperation between all countries, not no matter whether they're members of the European Union or not, it is exactly in cooperating on fighting organized crime in the Balkans. Um, and dealing with, uh, uh, not just with the perception of corruption and criminality, but dealing with the root causes of corruption and criminality um, um, in the region entirely. Because that is one uh, issue that you can't resolve on your own, because you can't build a wall around your country and say, well, I'll do the best things and then um, let everyone else just go to hell. It's not going to work that way. A lot of these uh, networks that we have to uh, deal with and uh, end up in different the tentacles end up in different countries, um, and this needs to be um, addressed in a very cooperative manner. Um, similarly, on, on, on building institutions, um, on building institutions, a lot of the experience 
the, the experience actually varies. I think we've seen in some parts of the Western Balkans some fairly successful um, transformations um, and, and others that have not been so successful. One that I would say has been very successful is the question of uh, um, question of uh, how in Bosnia the three communities have cooperated um, and have worked together on issues related to defense of Bosnia, sort of the military side of defense in, in Bosnia, the cooperation between the communities, the interaction has been very positive. One last point um, very quickly on um, the, the link which Vuk made between Croatia and um, Croatia ending negotiations, becoming a member and Serbia uh, starting, um, that's, uh, I think that's very important. We need to make sure that there is indeed this consistency of the process, uh, but we also must uh, remember that uh, uh, no, no human being in the Balkans, notwithstanding the status of its country or its disputes with its neighbors or anything related to history or its status or its negotiations with the European Union or anything else, must be left in isolation. And it's very important that as we move this process forward, we also move on the process of allowing the people in, in Kosovo to be able to travel without visas in the European Union, of course with all the requirements that that um, puts in place because we should not put anyone in, in, in isolation and lock them up uh, in any part of the Balkans. That would be, um, in the long run, that would be very wrong. Thank you. Okay. Just to open the floor for questions from the audience, uh, would you please be so kind to present yourself um, yes, gentlemen. Um, Mr. Chairman, uh, you asked the um, speakers to look into the future, and indeed, Minister Mladenov specifically warned us of the danger of reform minded people turning back. Uh, Minister Jeremic will no doubt remember the work of a number of Serbs in diaspora helping uh, him and like-minded people to win the elections and overturn Milosevic. However, that was 10 years ago. Does he not think that now uh, one of the key uh, items on the agenda of the election on which the party won was to denationalize or privatize the property in Serbia which was taken by communists in 1945 and for the last 10 years nothing has been done about it. The law, the draft of the law has been sitting in someone's drawer since 2001 and is that, is that not one of the prerequisites for uh, future investment in Serbia having the security of ownership? Thank you. Well, uh, one of the issues related, well, first of all, I want to say that uh, indeed there is a great and significant help that uh, opposition at the time had from people in diaspora, and in particular people in London, led by the gentleman who was asking this question at a time when we were overthrowing Milosevic and working very hard to, um, to make sure we turn a page in history and we start a new era in Serbia, an era of democracy, an era of, uh, of peace and reconciliation. 
Um, and I think that we traveled a very long uh, path, a very long road since then. That the improvements and the, the reforms, given the circumstances, given the current circumstances or recent circumstances in particular, I think that this, these achievements have been, um, I'd say, uh, non insignificant. When it comes to the issue of restitution, I believe that you're talking about restitution. Um, it is an immensely complicated issue. Uh, I'm not going to say that this is not, it's an insolvable issue, but it is an immensely complicated issue for a near to bankrupt state. Well, uh, one country joined the European Union that we have here, and I think that uh, Nikolai can attest how complicated this issue is. It's not just to return the property. You have several uh, owners. <coughs> several times the transaction has occurred in the meantime since the appropriation and I'm going to tell you that we're going to continue working very hard on this to make sure that somehow this issue is closed in line with the requirements of joining the European Union. But this, I mean anything else that I would say but that it is extremely complicated and that we're going to keep working on it. Anything else that I say would not correspond to truth. I have looked into this. I've looked into this myself because I travel very often to various places and I'm being asked this question and that's why I actually looked into the whole thing myself and I can assure you that <coughs> this is not as simple as just return the damn thing. Thank you. Um, Mr. Modeno, I think, would like to have a short comment. Just a very short comment because Bulgaria went through a restitution process which started immediately after, almost immediately after the end of communism and in the first couple of years and it lasted for a little bit over 10 years I think it, it, it was completed um, it was uh, uh, it's obviously a complicated legal process um, but our experience with it, it has been quite just in terms of uh, setting some of history's wrongs into today's rights. Um, um, I'm not to give advice to other countries how to approach it, but it is indeed difficult. Um, but in our, our, our experience with it, it is that it has restored to some extent this feeling of um, justness um, um, that many people felt bereaved of after uh, the communist takeover. Um, of course, its intricacies are, um, as Ras book said, rather, rather complicated. <laughs> Thank you. Um, next question, please. Hi, um, I'm a student at King's College. Um, I'm actually doing business management. And um, bringing you back to most recent events, um, there's been some speculation in the press about um, the EU actually being able to resist um, the economic crisis with all the big nations actually having um, really big deficits. And um, I just wanted to ask um, both representatives, what do you actually think, um, would the EU actually be able to resist? And um, what is the Balkans' role in the whole uh, resistance process? Thank you. Talking about resistance. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, it's a different sort of resistance, isn't it? But yes, it's a resistance. I think at this time we're looking more carefully at German resistance. Uh, and French resistance. Now, our hope is with that resistance. We stand up for that resistance that we, um, our, our hearts go out to those people who are, um, I mean, it, no, seriously, for Europe, it is a very, very difficult time, and it is difficult because of, um, basically because of the risk, the, the, the massive risk of, um, uh, policies which are now based on uh, the belief and the economic theory of restraining budget deficits as being uh, the driving force to sustaining ourselves through the through the crisis. Um, now, the biggest risk is when you take an economic theory and you in, in enshrine it in an international treaty, um, and this is the risk that we're all very carefully calculating right now. I think the um, our government has taken, I mean, Bulgaria has taken a very, very, very conservative approach to budget deficits over the last, uh, you know, effectively 15, 10, 15 years. Um, particularly over the last three years, two years, we've taken a very, very uh, restrictive uh, approach. Our budget deficit is uh, about 3 percent. Our debt-to-GDP ratio is um, about 17 percent. Um, uh, so, of course, this means that this carries all kinds of other social consequences with it. Um, but, um, you know, it's one thing to speak on the economy of Europe coming from a small member state, and it's quite different to speak on the economy of Europe coming from a big member state. Um, if in terms of what we've now put, what we've now seen on the table, uh, I think it's uh, it's quite worrying the situation in Ireland um, and Portugal. Um, this, uh, in a way, doesn't come, unfortunately, unexpected. Uh, but uh, with all the difficulties, it might actually be the better option to actually have a permanent mechanism in place that, with all the reputation risk that this carries over the short run, in the long run, having a uh, having a, um, a permanent uh, rescue mechanism with, with um, impossibly strong sanctions and impossibly strong um, punishment, if you want, for breaking the rules, um, can be a, can be a good thing. Um, the Balkans, in this uh, case, I don't think you know. With all due respect, I don't think uh, ours is the driving uh, resistance in this process. Thank you. I actually agree. I agree with Nikolai that uh, when it comes to the EU really resisting uh, this, uh, this economic crisis, uh, that uh, we in the Balkans, the EU members and, and the aspirant countries are now going to be really the key elements in, in how this resistance is, is put together. Um, as far as Serbia is concerned, we have uh, we have managed to to to, to mitigate the effects of the economic crisis, at least so far, rather well. We've done it through the arrangement with the International Monetary Fund, and uh, we opted for the restrictions. We opted for the restrictive, obviously, since we since we entered the um, the standby arrangement with the IMF, and our numbers are actually not that bad. But to do with the expansion, to do with the, uh, to do with the 
with the acceleration of the economy, I think that the only way is through regional integration. I'm talking about the economics, regional integrations in the region, using the, the free trade area that we have, which is SEFTA, using the fact that the whole SEFTA area has a, has a free trade with with Europe and that uh, and that Serbia in particular has uh, a number of free trade agreements with Russia, with uh, with Turkey, with Ukraine and uh, and with a number of other players. But working together, being part of the of the wider European resistance is, I think, the the way to do. It. I mean, there are enough issues in in which Serbia sticks out and and leads. For better or for worse, but in this one, I believe uh, we need to follow. Thank you. Um, next question. The gentleman. There's a mic. Thank you very much. My name is Arjen Krasnici. I'm the first secretary of the Embassy of the Republic of Kosovo in London here. I would like first to thank Minister Mladenov for his excellent speech and uh, very comprehensive and substantial um, cover of the topic and also for his struggle to keep try the EU enlargement debate alive within the EU. On the other hand, um, I, might, I must say that the uh, for, um, Yeremich speech was a very nice piece, rhetoric, an old singing, old dancing rhetoric on peace. And, all, it's very nice to hear that you're all about uh, a cooperation and regional cooperation and consensus when the actions on the ground speak different. You, you use every opportunity to obstruct Kosovo's um, cooperation with uh, regional cooperations like SEFTA you just mentioned. You've also called, called on the Serbs living in Kosovo not to participate in the elections, in the upcoming elections, something, um, and you've used them as a tool for your own political gains. Um, the other thing was you've mentioned reconciliation as one of your aims, key strategic aims of your government. And I can only ask you, when are you going to extend another apology, or when is your parliament going to extend another apology to Kosovo people for the atrocities that were committed? Thank you very and much. And second of all, when are you going to accept the new geopolitical reality in the Western Balkans and stop living in denial? Thank you. You go first and then we'll go for the eggs. Look, it's um, let me start from a little bit back when I became foreign minister, and I um, and we've broached the subject with Vuk briefly. Um, is that um, I inherited a situation in which the relationship between Bulgaria and Serbia, and I'm being very honest and undiplomatic about it, was practically frozen. Um, um, because of our recognition of the independence of Kosovo. Um, we did not have a relationship. We, we have ov obviously a relationship, but it wasn't a friendly relationship with Serbia. Um, and I have uh, uh, taken it on to myself to repair that relationship. And of course, our Prime Minister has been very supportive of this because we believe fundamentally that if, if notwithstanding the differences that we all have, on, on what happened in the last years in the Balkans, um, on history in, in the sort of the bigger picture, it is vitally important for our countries to be able to talk to each other. Unless we're able to talk to each, to each other, accepting the differences that we have and the different approaches, then um, uh, we, will, we will be actually at a major loss. Um, 
Now, it's one thing if you sit in, in the, at a university in Vancouver, perhaps, and you look at the map and you say, well, what's the big deal in the Balkans? It's quite a different thing when you sit, you know, 300 kilometers away from Pristina and I don't know how many <coughs> kilometers away from, uh, uh, from, from Belgrade. You can't say what's the big deal. Obviously, these are very, very emotional things. These are very, very charged uh, political decisions. Um, and you can't, um, uh, you can't be uh, blasé about it. Our own country, Bulgaria, has fought effectively two world wars and a number of Balkan wars um, with uh, uh, its neighbors. Um, uh, and it has all been around the question of Macedonia. From our own history, from our own historical perspective, the fact that Macedonia was not part of Bulgaria, was taken away, or whatever it was, you know, you can define it any way you want, um, uh, has driven our domestic political process for the entire period between, you know, before the First World War, right through the First World War, and almost up to the Second World War, effectively up to the Second World War. And hundreds of thousands of people have died in that process. So we understand how emotionally charged these issues can be. Of course, looking at it from today's <coughs> perspective, you, know, you accept that history, you accept those difficulties, you accept that um, reality. You get on to your car and you drive to Ohrid and you go fishing in the lake or you eat in the restaurant um, and your friends from Skopje come with you to Varna um, and it doesn't really matter because life has moved on. But it has taken it, what, 50 or 60 or almost 100 years for this to happen. So let's not kid ourselves that these things are easy, that these things are emotionally... Um, we can emotionally detach them in a way. So I have no problem in, in saying, you know, as you know, an independent country, we have taken a decision to recognize Kosovo. But I have no no problem in go when I go to uh, to Pristina to drive down the road um, into Gracanica, for example, where I've been twice, um, as once as minister and once once before and visit the Serbian community there and talk to them and listen to them about the complaints that they have about the situation in which they live in and, and trying to find a way to address them. Um, this is, uh, uh, and, and, and actually, actually when I went in there in the, uh, as, as foreign minister, um, it was the first, the, the mayor of the, the village uh, sort of almost cried and he said, look, this is the first time a, a minister from the European Union comes and visits us and sits down with us in our municipality to talk about these things. This does not mean that we want to undermine um, uh, the authority of anyone. But getting to the point at which uh, uh, the government in, 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 in Belgrade and Pristina sit down and begin talking about having a dialogue about issues that do not cross the red lines of either side, this is a very, very groundbreaking point. Um, and, and, you know, Vuk alluded to this in his, in his speech. Let us not kid ourselves. These are very important issues, and we need to uh, approach them in a manner that is acceptable to everyone. Um, we have a success, um, and this is the resolution which both the European Union and Serbia together tabled at the United Nations, adopted by consensus. We have that, that success. Let's build on that success. Let's open a channel for dialogue. Um, and let's try and resolve issues that, are, uh, that do not cross the red lines for either side, but that actually do help people 
that live on the ground to uh, to get on with their lives. This is this is this is what's important. We can't in just a sort of wave a magic wand and and, and resolve everything at the same time. Okay. I hope I've saved you the eggs. <laughs> no. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Um, I'm going to start with um, I'm going to start with talking about uh, the geopolitical reality. The geopolitical reality is that the issue of Kosovo is a deeply divisive issue that is dividing the world, dividing the region, dividing the Security Council. Um, there are about two thirds of the world who do not recognize Kosovo. There is one third, very vocal, admittedly and very much working hard and pushing and very powerful that are trying to to convince the other two-thirds of the world without much success as of lately that um, that this issue is over we're gonna have divisive debates like with like the one we've had in the Security Council on Friday in February there's gonna be another Security Council session you're gonna have Big countries arguing in favor of Kosovo's independence, like the United States, United Kingdom, France. You're going to have countries like Russia, China, Brazil, India, and South Africa all arguing against in the next session of the Security Council. There are a lot of people who are having different points of view on this, on this issue. What Serbia's point of view is that um, statehood has never been achieved in the history of the United Nations without consent of a parent state. Not a single time in history, so that if this time it happens, it would create a very dangerous precedent for, not just for our region, but I'd say for the wider world. And I think that roughly about two-thirds of the world are having the same point of view after all these um, um, diplomatic uh, wrangling that we've had for about three years now. When it comes to regional cooperation, I want to reiterate that Serbia is strongly committed to regional cooperation. But um, you can't force your way into regional cooperation. You cannot unilaterally declare that you qualify for this or for that. Um, there are certain rules. There are certain rules, there are certain statutes. You need to follow statutes. Serbia, for example, has welcomed the representatives of Pristina into SEFTA. Our Prime Minister Kostunica signed together with the then representatives of Pristina authorities their joining of the SEFTA. They joined SEFTA under the name Onmik Kosovo. There is a signature of Onmik there. And there are rules of procedure that we are following. The fact that Kosovo attempted to unilaterally declare statehood um, is really not going to make us change our mind about following the rules. However, part of this dialogue that we are hoping to have as soon as possible, really. I mean, Serbia has been ready for weeks to start this dialogue. We're very much prepared to make this a part of this dialogue. And we're ready to be constructive because, like Nikolai said earlier, it's not the idea to leave anybody in isolation. I mean, one can certainly try very hard to be in isolation 
but that is something that we would not recommend to you. Uh, I think that we should engage in the process in which um, all the open issues, including Pristina's participation in regional meetings and international meetings, is considered. We're not going to say no to any outcome in advance. But we are not going to receive anybody's diktat. Because that's not how the rules of the international relations work. We're just following the rules. And um, we truly hope that the new page is going to be turned in 2011 and that solutions are going to be found to outstanding issues. But hard-headedness, insistence on uh, extracting unilateral concessions, uh, making sure that it's your way or no way and ignoring the rules of international relations, I don't think that this is going to get us very far. In the meantime, I don't expect Pristina to become a member of any international organization using forceful arguments of we must get there. It worked in the IMF because there is a skewed way of voting in that particular organization. But I don't think it's realistic to expect that Pristina can force its way through these organizations. And I can tell you, for as long as this government is in office, the door will be open for a constructive dialogue as to how we get there. Um, there are many, many ways in which one can be creative and in, one in which one can work in good faith to uh, reach an arrangement that does not cross anybody's red lines, including Serbia's, that are clear, distinct, and enshrined in our Constitution. Thank you. Um, our time is, is running out, so I'll allow just one more question. Fortunately, Okay. Well, our, 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 our guests are ready to answer a few more questions, so uh, we'll do that. We'll respond to a couple more questions. So, okay, who... The lady in... That's the, the green dress. Uh, thank you. Um, my question is related to international organized crime. You mentioned, uh, Mr. Yeremich, that uh, Serbia opposes it and is going to struggle against it. I would like to know, actually, uh, how would you see the role of Serbia in dealing with organized crime in Kosovo, especially uh, the, the one related to, for example, illegal organ trade, which was mentioned in BBC Online a couple of weeks ago and other issues that are related to the same thing. Thank you. <laughs> As I said, there is no successful cooperation in the organized crime in the Balkans unless this is a collective effort. Because that's the only way, uh, that, that, this is the only field where I say that regional integration was 100% successful and this is the organized criminal gangs from across uh, borders and administrative lines that have managed to find ways of cooperating very well together. Um, when it comes to Kosovo, uh, Serbia's capacity is constrained by the Resolution 1244. So uh, 
we are working very closely with UNMIC and with ULEX, which are our legal interlocutors in fighting organized crime there in the in the province. Uh, indeed, this is a part of the European soil that is burdened most by the organized crime in terms of drug trafficking, um, human trafficking, and um, unfortunately this horrendous um, organ trafficking, which has been according to reports and according to investigations has been happening for, for quite a while, since the year 1999. And, uh, and there is a special investigation of the Council of Europe, of uh, the parliamentarian in the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly, Dick Marty, a Swiss parliamentarian who is uh, who's currently investigating um, organ trading in Kosovo. And recently, I think that we've heard from the news reports that there were successes by the EULEX prosecutors in EULEX police in, uh, in capturing uh, new gangs of organ traders in Kosovo. But without normalizing situation, without bringing the tensions down, without truly finding a way to engage with each other, despite political differences over the status, I think that we're going to witness just more and more of the perpetuation um, of this situation. Um, we want to normalize our relations in the Balkans. And when I say relations between Belgrade and Pristina, I don't necessarily mean relations like with other capitals that Belgrade needs to do because of the delicate issue of the status. But finding a way of engaging in cooperation in fields like the organized crime, in particular when it comes to Kosovo, because Kosovo is a really troubled part of Serbia in that regard. We, we, we need to find ways of working together. Um, one more question, because we indeed need to, to... Over there, something from the left side. Uh, the, the lady in, in white. Hello, my name is Plamina, and I'm a graduate student at the LSE. Um, my question is in the context of what we are discussing right now. Um, pretty much, we see a rise of rightist parties in the Balkans, and they are a result of this integration, accession, and of challenged identities. Now, what is your opinion on the impact of these radicalist movements, and uh, will this become a major problem in uh, the further integration within the Balkans? And what specific frameworks should we, should we be discussing in um, order to guarantee a success of um, further accession? Thank you. I wouldn't... Uh, from the rightist party. Uh, yes, I do, and I'm proud of it. But I don't think the, the threat is really that you have... Um, parties on the right, it's more that you have uh, populist parties um, that try to appeal to very short-term sentiments of <coughs> public opinion. Um, when you see such movements um, in places like the Netherlands, they look rather exotic and interesting. When you see them in the Balkans, they tend to end up with wars. Um, so, uh, you know, your, your, your question is very, much, very, very pertinent right now. Um, I think... Um, 
you you have a rise when 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 a society doesn't see a perspective, when people do not see a perspective and better opportunities in the future or or more stability or whatever, then they become more um, um, susceptible to to sort of populist um, ideas um, when they feel that their identity is threatened or denied or um, unaccepted. Uh, they become they feel more susceptible to such um, uh, to such populist um, ideas um, and in generally in the short run i think you know if you look at um, history if you if you look at the uh, accession of central and eastern europe into the european union in each and every country from the baltics to the balkans um, just about accession you saw a rise in sort of nationalist sentiment and, 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 and populist parties. Um, and then within a few years after that, those parties sort of fell sort of to generally acceptable levels um, in, you know, most places, we hope. Um, and to now, there are different ways of explaining that. One is that you know, Europe, the idea of, you know, everyone coming together, etc., to some seems... Um, foreign and it means well it actually undermines our own identity um, and we'd like to protect our identity and that's why we you know move to these um, to these populist movements um, I don't think that's the case I think actually the integration of Europe and the, integ the idea that you can um, um, everyone can have their own identity within a peaceful environment is actually much more valuable than Sort of waving the flag and, and 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 pretending that you're going to achieve something, which obviously you're not. Um, so to that extent, it's very. I think it's uh, you know there's a risk in the Balkans, perhaps that uh, as people don't feel this, they don't feel that their countries are moving forward, or they feel that they're being rejected by Europe, or they feel that their identity is not protected and threatened or they feel isolated as is you know as was the case in many places with the visas as the case is um, still in some places so uh, this this needs to be addressed um, and in I, I i mean i might be i mean i've been listening to myself this this evening and i think i might be sort of a um, a raving optimist about uh, the future, but I'd prefer to be a raving optimist about the future uh, than to be a raving pessimist about the present. Um, because if you're a raving pessimist about the present, you're definitely not going to be optimistic about the future in any case. So let's be a bit optimistic about the fact that we can get through all of these things and we can resolve them um, and, we can, uh, uh, and, and, and we can move on. Thank you. Now you're setting the bar too high now. <laughs> I have to be optimistic <laughs> as well <laughs> in this regard. No, I'm just kidding. Um, in, our, in our country, it's... Um, in our country, in our country, you know, the, the biggest problems, the biggest nationalist rampages took place under the lead of the Socialist Party of Serbia. So uh, the righties parties are not necessarily related, and I would agree 100% with Nikolai that we're more talking about the populist parties, not necessarily talking about the disposition inside the traditional uh, spectrum. Um, I'm very 
proud that in Serbia we managed to in a way shift by one general vector the entire coordinating system of the political theater over the last two years. Um, I'm now looking at my assistant and he's looking at me always when I'm using mathematical <laughs> mathematical symbols um, which are not I guess very clear to everybody. Anyhow, I, 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 what I wanted to say is that the entire political spectrum in Serbia shifted towards normalcy. And I can not easily imagine rising again of the nationalist, populist, radical, warmongering, whichever way you want to call them, forces that uh, we used to have only years ago. And now both the government and the opposition, they claim that uh, European Union and, uh, and the membership in the European Union and peace and reconciliation between the nations of the Western Balkans are the priority. So this is an issue that has now become uh, an across-the-aisle um, consensus in Serbia. Um, unfortunately, some of our neighbors are not in the same situation, and I think that we need to work very closely together to make sure that this kind of positive shift that we've had in Serbia over the past few years is replicated in some of the neighboring countries and uh, and again regional cooperation and EU integration which has been uh, the topic of the evening I think is the best way forward but I'd say that there is far more tolerance there is um, far more normalcy there is there is a far better we, we have a far better situation in the Balkans right now despite all the difficulties despite the economic crisis despite the unresolved issues related to national sentiments, which we have discussed this evening, I think we're in a better situation. So, honestly, um, nah, I'm not going to be a raving optimist, but uh, I'm an optimist when it comes to the Balkans. Thank you. Um, fortunately, uh, someone has to draw this to a close, and, and uh, there have been many questions, and I see there's so many hands, but... Uh, we have run out of time. And since I'm the only one here at this table who's not a diplomat, it comes to me to uh, close the discussion. And, and uh, no one is. <laughs> no one is. Well, then I'll try to be as diplomatic in trying to You're conclude the evening. Thank you very much. <laughs> Coming from you is, is, is it really a compliment. Um, I will. First of all, I thank our our speakers and our guests for truly honoring this 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 occasion, and in particular for um, inspiring speeches and and trying to respond to questions and to the the topics of of tonight as honestly as as is possible. And this this was inspirational, as I said, and also for doing their best to end this evening on an optimistic note. I only hope that it doesn't end as the, the saying that says the difference between an optimist and a pessimist is that the optimist believes that this is the best of all worlds and the pessimist knows this. 
So, in the end, I really wish to thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming tonight and being our guests uh, and honoring this, this, this occasion. Um, I also want to thank the wonderful people, LSC Ideas, who have done very hard work to make this possible, in particular, uh, the program assistant, Mrs. Irini Karamuzi. And in, finally, to ask you to join me once again to thank our guests for their inspiring contribution to tonight.